0: The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him, and He burns up His adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim His righteousness, and all the peoples see His glory. All worshippers of images are put to shame. Who make their boast in worthless idols? Worship him, all you gods. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 79. Uh, with this, that Psalm, along with Psalm 99, are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, February the 15th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. I appreciate it very much. We are continuing our look at the Messianic prophecies of Isaiah, also continuing our look at First Timothy in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 2, verse 8, and then in Mark's Gospel, the 11th chapter, verses 12 to 26. So <clears throat> we're continuing to see the, the hope that Isaiah is proclaiming to the people of God, so it begins with, I'll recount the steadfast love of the Lord. This is Isaiah 63, verses 7 to 14. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And so in those two statements that he has granted these this goodness, to the house of israel because of his compassion and steadfast love what that harkens back to is god's own self-description in isaiah or no i'm sorry not Isaiah, in exodus 34 when moses asks to see his glory god tells him he proclaims on his name that he is compassionate and has steadfast love hesed um, which means that that he perseveres in his loving kindness in all events so Isaiah is prepared to to tell us these things, and we see this same pattern all through the Psalms. David will will recount those things that have gone before, and those, those are the purposes, actually, of most of the festivals. Um, the festivals Israel of Israel are designed for remembrances of things that have gone before, and that remembrance is a specific kind of remembrance, and the um, Greek word for it is anamnesis, and what it means is to put yourself in the shoes of in such a way that the, the past becomes present. So time has kind of collapsed. You're participating. The goal is sort of for you to participate in the events that you're remembering. So the Passover, it's multisensory, right? So you tell the story, but you also eat the food. And then the food has meaning. And the purpose is to put you in the shoes of those who have gone before. The harvest festivals are the same way. The, the, the intention is to remember that my father was a wandering Aramean. And had it not been for God giving us this productive land, we wouldn't have had any of these things. And so that's the purpose of the festivals in the same way that um, Holy Communion is intended to be for God's people. We are remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, but in remembering his sacrifice, we're remembering his life. We're remembering the incarnation, and we're also remembering the resurrection because the power is in the blood And Jesus says that we've we've got to take the body and blood seriously. And so what we do is we remember those things. And and so when we do that, we recall the great things that God has done, whether that's personal in our own lives, whether it's corporately in our church, in the fellowship that we're in, or collectively down through the uh, millennia of the church. It's important that we remember all these things in such a way that we bring those into the present and make them real for us today. So he said, um, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. And so that that's actually the way that it's intended to be. We, we're intended to live in that kind of symbiotic, um, needy <laughs> sort of relationship with him. We're not supposed to be self-sufficient. The more self-sufficient we are, the further we're getting from him. Because his intention is for us to be in conversation with him and in relationship with him all the time. So he did all this for them, Isaiah says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them the Holy Spirit who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name who led them through the depths so that he became an enemy to them because they had forsaken him and the point of being an enemy to them was to get them to return to him. Because as they saw their world falling apart, the the, the point was for that they would turn to him, that they would forsake the gods who had clearly forsaken them. And then in the midst of that it can feel like that he has forsaken his own people. But Remembering the covenant relationship, whether you're an Israelite, remembering the covenant relationship with the nation, or whether you're a Christian, remembering the covenant relationship that you've established in that's been established in the in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and you're appropriating that into your life, then then every communion becomes an opportunity to restart, to, to begin all over again by taking in that that body and blood, the forgiveness that's there, the redemption that's there but it, but sometimes he's got to get our attention because we get self-sufficient and we get away from him and his call is always to bring us back to him because he loves us but sometimes it looks like and feels like he's our enemy but it's because we've gone astray and what he wants is us to remain in relationship because that's safest and best for us to be in that kind of relationship with him He's like a horse in the desert. They did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. What a wonderful word that that Isaiah is giving this exiled people to encourage them to believe. Because in that situation, sometimes we have to be encouraged to believe when the world looks like it's falling apart around us and there's no hope and we're stuck in this sort of groundhog day rut of every day being the same. You know, I'm talking about the movie that every day is the same and we never seem to get out of the cycle. Then what he's what Isaiah is trying to do, what the Lord's trying to do through Isaiah is maybe a better way to say it is to encourage the people to believe that he still has them in his hand and that he will bring about their redemption. And, and as Christians, we need to do the same thing. We need to constantly remind ourselves what he has done. And in that, we know it's because he loves us, because he's in covenant with us. And that covenant was established at baptism and renewed in communion. And so it's always an opportunity for us to be reminded and to come back to the relationship with him but we need to be present to win we, we we have to join in the worship of god's people in order to get there in the gospel they had gone in remember into the into jerusalem and uh on palm sunday and then come out to bethany and beth page out near the mount of olives so on the following day when they came from bethany he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf he went to see if he could find anything on it When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it wasn't the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. Well, it's not the season for figs, but the reality is, is that when a fig tree is in leaf that way, it's a sign that there should be the figs come first. Now, it takes a long time, at least where we live in western North Carolina. It takes a long time for figs to ripen on the tree. I mean, I'll start seeing figs probably... I don't know, May, something like that. But I may not be able to pick them and eat them, most of them at least, until September or October. Uh, so there's a long lag time for those things to develop. But then the the tree comes into leaf sort of after those buds of the fruit appear. And so it, if you saw a fig tree in leaf, you would have reason to believe that there may be something edible on that tree. So it's not wrong. It's just out of season for it to, to be that way. But, hey, sometimes things bloom and provide fruit in weird weird times in the last couple of years we've had a, an apple tree that's leafed twice in the year it'll leaf and then the leaves will fall off and then it'll leaf again um, it, it's a very strange thing but but sometimes it can trick you and it can fool you and it's the same with people and it's the same with well us things look good from a distance because just says Jesus saw it from a distance so he had to get up close to see that it wasn't producing any fruit not at that time at least but it, it's it's a parable for the nation. It could also be a parable for the church. It's the same kind of parable when when he talks about giving somebody ten talents, five talents, and one talent. You know, it, there's an expectation that there will be fruit. Jesus tells us that in in all the Gospels. Specifically, he tells us that in uh, John's gospel, he talks about, you know, do this, abide in me that you may bear fruit and fruit that will last. And every branch that doesn't bear fruit is thrown on the fire. And so that parable, those parables should be dancing around the edges of everything that they're going to see here. So they leave, they've left Bethany, they're headed to Jerusalem and he enters the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, the intention was never for those people the sellers of sacrificial animals to be set up inside the temple precincts. Where they set up made it impossible for the nations, the Gentiles, to come in here and see what was going on in the temple. They, they could only go in certain areas, and they set up to sell these things in those areas. And so what were they doing? Okay, they were selling sacrificial animals, and, and the, what they were selling was, was ones that were pre-approved by the priests. And so they, they fetched a premium price. And so the people who were coming from afar didn't bring their animals in case something happened to them on the way, and they didn't know for certain whether they would be acceptable to the priests once they got there to make the sacrifice. So it was easier just to bring the money and go and get those, even though there's a premium for those animals in that place. And so he starts with the uh, those who bought in the temple, those who sold and those who bought. And then he overturned the tables of the money changers. The money changers, there was a tax, the temple tax, that had to be paid in a certain kind of currency. And so the money changers were there because it was an uncommon kind of currency, so pilgrims wouldn't have had it. So when they come into town, they've got to pay the temple tax as part of their uh, pilgrimage obligation, and so they've got to change their currency into that currency, and so what's happening there? What's happening there is they're charging a premium for that currency exchange. And then finally, it says that he, he drove out the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, those who sold pigeons, that's a poor man's sacrifice. If you're unable to do the others, God made a provision that you could sacrifice pigeons. And so they're taking advantage of the poor in that particular place. They're taking advantage of pilgrims and the poor. And so Jesus drives them out because they're taking advantage of those people, but they've also made it so that the nations cannot come as a place of prayer. They can't come to the Lord. They can't approach even where they're able to go. They're not allowed because of these, this buying and selling. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. You were not supposed to carry things through the temple. These would have been ways of making money, the things they were carrying through the temple. <laughs> and he was teaching them and saying to them, it's, is it not written, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. So like I said, they, he, they've kept out these Gentiles from being able to come near the temple and to hear what's going on, to learn about the Lord or even to pray to the Lord. And, and so they've done that. It's, it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but they're, not, they're disallowing them to come near. And then the den of robbers is, is the way that they have been taking advantage of and profiteering on on godly things. The sacrificial system and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching and when evening came they Jesus and the disciples went out of the city so the we see that he is arousing the anger of the scribes of the priests and the scribes in this place because they uh, had something to lose one was the affection of the people but the other was this grift they had going on over the sacrificial system As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered remembered, and said to them, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who alone, who also is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. So there's principles that Jesus is teaching about prayer. And what he's saying is, is that, that if you believe, and you should believe, because the one who, to whom you're praying is able to do anything then then you can have received this thing. Now, does that mean that we can ask literally for, hey, I wish I had a million dollars, sort of like in um, It's a Wonderful Life, and get it? You know, No, that's not the way it works. That, it, God's not obliged to do what you ask him to do. You, he's just not. It, it's not the way it works. Um, Jesus prays, remember, in this same garden, he prays that that you're able to take this cup from me, but if it's not your will, don't do it. So it doesn't mean you can change God's will, his plan, and his purpose simply by asking for things. That's not the way it works. And then he gives the ultimate principle there at the end. When you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. And so there's, a, there's an implicit statement there that you need forgiveness. And Jesus teaches this again and again, that we're forgiven as we forgive, that we, we, we are to forgive as God forgives. We're to be like that part of his character, the one that Isaiah talked about before, that he is compassionate and he has steadfast love for us. And we, we are to be, our character is to be molded after God's character. And we can't do that if we're holding things against our brothers and sisters. And so we acknowledge our own sin and our need for forgiveness, but that should then impel us to forgive those who have sinned against us. In the epistle today, Paul is is, is telling Timothy, is encouraging Timothy in certain things. He said, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. So people had spoken words over Timothy and prophesied about the ministry that he would have and what God had called him to do. <laughs> he said, that you by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So continue in the prophecy that was spoken over you, what it was you were called to do. In our world, you know we have ordination services and in the ordination service, we're asked to do certain things. you know and I've said this a million times, it's the reason that I was ordained using the form of the 1928 prayer book. It's because in that prayer book, it said that we would devote ourselves to uh, study of the Word and things pertaining thereto, laying aside the study of all else. There's nothing like that in the 1979 prayer book. So I believe that my ministry is a gospel ministry. I believe all priestly ministry is a gospel ministry, and therefore— The most important thing that we do, the most important thing we have to offer anybody is is counsel from the Word of God and teaching from the Word of God. And everything we need, all the principles for the way we live, the way we forgive, the way we love, all of that are found in Scripture. And so that's what we have to offer, not um, worldly things. We have a different way of looking at things, and that's what he's, Paul's talking about here. He said, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Remember, there was a lot of idol worship in Ephesus particularly. That's where the sibyls were. Um, it was also a big uh, place for Diana worship. And so there, the, one of the things that Paul says to Timothy and and to the church in Ephesus he, is where he will say things about he doesn't allow women to teach men, and, that, and he's saying that in the context of Ephesus primarily, I believe, that he, he's saying it because they had been the spiritual leaders in that place, and so there, there needed to be a step back and a change of these people who had come out, because there's always a temptation of syncretism, bringing your previous belief system into the the church, and so you have to be careful about that. And that's exactly what he's what he's saying here. These people who represent idol worship, he is handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And, and what he doesn't mean there is eternally. He he means for this season of time so that they can learn and then then they can come back. He said, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, which is exactly the point that Jesus had made had to do with prayer and the believing prayer. And he says for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, that they'll leave us alone, that they won't pass laws that persecute us. He said, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So if we don't believe that leaders are uh, in the faith, whether they say they are or not, then, then our response should be to pray. Our response should be that we would pray for them to receive his Holy Spirit and to live from the truth, from the faith that they say they profess, that what we need in order to live godly and quiet lives, has to peaceful and quiet lives, has to do with leaders who understand God, who understand Yahweh, because then they will be different kinds of leaders if they do that. And it's God's desire that all should come to truth, and, and we should want the same thing. And so we should pray for that. For there's one God, there's one mediator, between god and man the man christ jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time so uh, there, there are not many mediators there's only one mediator we can go directly to him and he and the father are one and so we we know that we have confidence that jesus talks about in our prayers we have confidence because of the resurrection We have confidence because we know that Jesus' prayers are heard. We know we can go directly to him who sits at the right hand of the throne and make our plea to him in his name. And we know that they're heard and they're answered. And we can have that kind of confidence because of the resurrection. He said, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I don't know why he says that, by the way. It's because it was always under attack. His apostleship was a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He was called to a specific apostolic ministry, which is a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He said, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So Paul says, let the church... Let the people of God be a people of prayer, making their petitions to him. And that's an important message beginning in the, um, the prophetic words of Isaiah all the way through the gospel. Jesus teaches about prayer. And now here Paul says this is the way this should be a characteristic of the church is it, the kingdom it, is the church on its knees praying to God rather than trying to constantly take matters into their own hands and quarreling and fighting all the time.